0: The Spin Off Podcast Network.
1: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today.
0: The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. and uh, welcome to the, the second lock-in episode of The Fold and maybe the sixth overall. Numbers don't mean anything anymore. Um, sorry for missing April. This was originally intended to be in April, but yeah, you know, t- time uh, defeated me. Um, My guest today is uh, Bailey Mackey. So he's outside of what has been the beat of this to this point, which has been interviewing people from the news side of the media. Um, Bailey runs Pongo Productions, uh, which is a production house, so it's more on the screen production side of things. But they are... Look, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, I think any media geeks will too. Um, We talk about a bunch of things, including sort of how you sell shows internationally from formats to kind of individual packages. Um, He tells a very, very funny story about uh, having about one and a half hour sleep after a massive night out um, and pitching a show. In the U.S., uh, he also has just essentially infinite wisdom, um, to, which which comes from the career that he's had. Uh, he started at Tikkadeli in um, I think about two thousand one. Uh, they were advertising a single reporting role. He hitched up. He hitchhiked up there, borrowed a suit that didn't fit went in and on his way way into his audition as a young Julian Wilcox, who is basically like a broadcaster made in a lab and immediately knew that he didn't have the job. But it's the immense credit of the, uh, the then-tikare crew that they hired him and Julian uh, rather than just one of them. And they both gone on to extraordinary careers in journalism. Bailey's has been, even though he's done a bunch of front-of-camera stuff, it's very much been more on the production and now sort of, you know, I guess, you know, running the whole ship side of things. Um, he's worked under Julie Christie. Uh, he was hired away from Takari by uh, Mel Reed to work at Three. He's made sports shows. He made the GC. Um, he's basically had this just, just an extraordinary career in television and he's only just sort of in his early 40s. Um, and he... Is clearly just on, I think he's about to go through another kind of major uptick. He's one of the very fortunate people who this, um, you know, the the COVID-19 era represents opportunity to him. That's because, in part, because he has spent the last 10 years just learning the ways of the industry in a way which I think is really, really instructive and that a lot of people could learn from watching the from him, from the way he's gone about learning. I think, you know, as he says, he's a real people person, a real people watcher. He's very engaging. But he has done the schlepping, you know, taken the big risk, gone to LA, gone to Mipcom in Cannes, sold formats, um, you know, met met people, listened to them, learned from them, and you know, he he essentially has, I think, like a lifetime's worth of TV wisdom and accumulated knowledge, but he is fortunate enough to have it in still what is still, you know, at worst, the midpoint of his career. And now all those contacts are extraordinarily useful, more so even than normal, because New Zealand is about to go, you know, in all likelihood to level two, and in which case we'll be able to make television here in a way that's unimaginable in other parts of the world. And Bailey has both the experience and the contacts to to leverage that, and that is part of the thing that will you know hopefully avert the worst of the recession that's coming and, and pull us out of it. Um, so we talk about all that stuff and about the the low culture side of um, reality TV or the stigma attached to it, about the way that we find television in this country about uh, Māori media, the challenge it faces, the the immense opportunities of it. Uh, it's a really, really fun and hopefully interesting chat and about, you know, with someone who, to my mind, we should consider in the same realm as the likes of uh, Taiko Waititi and, and Lord and Peter Jackson. Um, maybe he's not as prominent, but he's certainly got, he's sort of as connected and uh, has as much to give as those people and you know I think that in the next few years next few months maybe everything's moving so fast now we're going to start to see a lot more of that anyway that's uh, enough from me Uh, let's just drop right into uh, this episode of The Fold with uh, Bailey Mackey. Kelder Bailey, how are you? Hey, good. Thanks, Duncan. Good, bro. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for making the time to, to join me on the, the fold. What else is there to do? We're in lockdown. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um... I should really be trying to get hold of a lot more busy people at the moment because yeah, it, yeah. it's it's that combination of being of working like a lot, but also having kind of weird like permanent availability, eh?
1: Dude, it's weird because you you um, you know you find yourself on calls on uh, Sunday night or Saturday morning and, and things like that because there is no sort of sense of um, time or kind of daily uh, duty kind of thing. So everything you're available twenty four seven, and which makes it kind of worse in some ways for people like us.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are no weekends. There are no evenings. There's no time. There's just just lockdown, and it's just lockdown. This lockdown. Um, so I I've been meaning to get uh, Bailey on the phone uh, on the fold for a while, but then last week we were both on a Zoom uh, kind of panel conference thing. Uh, it was put together. It was by the I think Directors and Editors Guild of New Zealand um, to discuss a draft screen sector review. This massive, massive piece of work. Uh, it was like a fifty page document and a ninety minute Zoom and I have to say it was, it was an interesting chat, but the whole time I was like, I just want to hear what Bailey's got to say. And <laughs> mm. so, um, so that's why I've, I've organized this, um, and rather than run through, uh, your bio, um, which is, could, you could easily do a couple of hours on or more. Um, I'm going to strongly recommend that people look up Julian Wilcox's indigenous hundred podcast, which, uh, she which did last, late last year, and it was so illuminating about your, your time growing up, um, in and around Gisborne and, um, just, just, I guess your path to this point. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a real good yarn, and um, I liked
1: how you called it. Was it the, the Mari Ken Kendall that you called it? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely Jules. Jeez. Uh, He'd come out of the box ready to roll. I've never seen anybody, probably the most accomplished broadcast I've ever worked with, and, um, and uh, I've worked with a few, but he started like that, which was the scary thing. You know, there was no kind of
0: easing in process for Jules. It was just like he was ready to roll. Yeah, it, just, it was just this amazing contrast. You, you've got to listen to it. It's so good. But there's, Bailey tells a story about starting at Tukatari, um going up for for his interview, borrowing a suit that's multiple sizes too small and rocking in, and there's Julian Wilcox but just absolutely gleaming the way he has throughout his career. And you really get a sense of that moment. Every bit of hair, hair was in place.
1: And I remember thinking, stuff this guy. Um, but yeah, but um, look, I, I guess I'm glad that um, somebody had the foresight to hire both of us that day, um, and kind of set us set us loose on our on our journeys. So,
0: yeah, it's 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 amazing the you know how important um, shows like Te Karere are in terms of career. You know the the number of people who've been through there, and you sort of think without that as an institution, how different New Zealand's media and, and screen sector would be because they need to be able to, you know, there's the, there's the ones that you hire straight out of the box, like Julian, but then there's also the, you know, guys like you hitched up from... <laughs> Ruffer's uh, guts. Ruffer. Yeah, but, but guts. got something, got something, yeah. you know.
1: Well, um, I, I, I think the other part of that too was that was pre-kinda Moldy TV, pre uh, the real sort of advent of digital um, age. And there was only like, us and a couple of Maori on uh, my time, and you know the odd Maori on Shortland Street that were actually on TV. Um, so, so those those were different different times.
0: And uh, yeah, so like I say, I, I, I would love to, to to talk about that the whole time, but it is there. This this <coughs> podcast, um, the Indigenous One Hundred, is um, is fantastic. So look that up. Um, but I want to talk. So just basically parachute it right into this moment, because you run Pungo, you've got, I mean, you've got a million jobs and, and we'll get to some of those, but, you know, you've been, you know, like making television, you know, through your production company for at least 10 years now, is that right?
1: Yeah, uh, you no, know, uh, Pango's only been going, I think we're probably into uh, like five and a half years now, so pretty crazy to think we've done what we've done in that time, but. But yeah, five and a half years. And then prior to that, I was with Black Ink, um, which was the company that I sold to iWorks that sold to Warner Th- that's Brothers. That's right. So.
0: Yeah. But, you know, at the very least, like that's that's a long spell. Yes. To, yeah. And a cru- crucial spell to to have watched how, how it evolves. Yeah. Um, do you want to just describe to me the mood in the industry both within and without of New Zealand right now, just just staring down these incredibly yeah. constrained circumstances, both financially and creatively, really? Uh,
1: look, I, I think there are definitely two parts to the industry. One is that I think a great deal, a part of the sector is in survive mode. Um, and then I think there's a small part which is in the thrive mode. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer that kind of, um at the heart of all great creativity is there's a level of friction, whether it's in a story and 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 friction between characters and and um things like that or even friction in a creative process. Um, you know, that old adage of, you know, friction makes diamonds kind of thing. So so for me, I kind of exist at the moment probably one quarter in the survive uh Sort of paradigm, and then three quarters um, in the thrive uh, category. Because the reality is, is I'm 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 keen um, keen to get out of lockdown, but but actually, just look, I think it's posed a lot of um, really good questions about where we're headed um, as a company um, in terms of the sector. As I said, I think that's the kind of two sort of um, uh, Ways that people are looking at it. Um, I've, you know, I was talking to my agent uh, two days ago, and um, he uh, was telling me that look, buyers are buying, um, and so we shouldn't stop um, creating. We shouldn't stop, um, I guess, uh, pitching ideas and things like that. So, look, I I think there is a great part of the sector though that is fearful, and 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 I think we got a sense for that on the um sort of call we were on last week in the forum that we were part of duncan um and there, there's a real trepidation uh, um but 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 for me i I guess you know everything I do I kind of see through my lens and where we're at and and I definitely think it's it's um
0: it's thrive time really that's cool and because I sort of when I think about New Zealand uh, and its screen sector, particularly over the next couple of years, you know, if you look at everything through the lens of what's going to be possible uh, overseas in terms of scale productions and the amount of time and money that goes into these things, it's kind of hard to imagine it uh, happening, except under very strange Circumstances um, mm. in a lot of other places in the world that make shows are you you know but just because like of the reality of getting anywhere from dozens to hundreds of people all in one place insulated from the rest of uh, society to to be able to to make television which is is complex and so you 've got this amazing demand through a lot of people being at home and they're going to be going in and out of lockdown for. At least the rest of the year, if not longer. Um, but the yeah, the pipe's emptying. So, yeah, you know, is is it is this being seen as an opportunity for New Zealand to be a place that can make things?
1: Yeah. Uh, so the simple answer is yes. I talked uh, with a, a UK producer network last week about them wanting to do a series down here, send their presenter down, uh, put them in two weeks of quarantine. I mean, the big part of it is um, unscripted, which is kind of the area of my speciality, which is documentary, uh, reality, entertainment, lifestyle, those types of genres. Um, It'll be, Golden times. Well, it is golden times, I think, for our sector because, a- as you saw in the writers' strike that happened in the early two thousands in Hollywood, which kind of born the you know uh, the great sort of reality age, if you like, or the great unscripted age, um, because of the turnaround time on scripted. People have all these these thirsty real estate in terms of platforms, whether they. are OTT streaming or uh, linear or cable and they all need filling. So, um, the re you know, unscripted is, is really, uh, a lot quicker to turn around. So. Um, I don't know though that the New Zealand sector is as coordinated in the unscripted side as it as it sort of tends to be on the scripted side. I know that you know mainly um, a lot of the levers that we have available as a sector get get used in regards to scripted. Um, so so I think that um, you know we do need cohesion on the unscripted side. I mean we we you know our company, we just, we, we go to the markets, we have agency representation, um, we're in LA a lot. Um, I mean, all of that has changed a bit, but but what, what's interesting, you know, changed a bit through COVID. What's interesting though is that, and I don't know about you, but it's weird because you're, you're having Zoom conversations or you're, you're talking to clients or you're talking to buyers and, and you have your agent and that. There's, there's also a level of intimacy in terms of talking to that really powerful person, uh In their spare bedroom um, and and it's kind of weird um because you're like, "Oh, those are pretty cool curtains." And and you you actually get into a level of kind of uh, detail and understanding of that person, and you know their young child might be running around in the background, and and you kind of start to realise how human human everyone is, and, and things like that. So look, again, I, I I don't want to sound like I'm representative of the sector in saying this, but I do know that for us, it's definitely thrive time, and and we're really putting uh, kind of the the gas on, if you like.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It's so true what you say about the leveling effect of this, because normally when you go into those big rooms, and I haven't been into many of them myself, but even if we're going to pitch on like a big corporate client, yes you can be sort of conscious of where you're coming from and the scale of your the relative scale of your organizations. Yeah. But when everyone is in their bedroom and everyone's kids are running in and out. You sort of it feels like the power of the idea or of your connection matters more than the sort of all of this other stuff we wrap around um, business that that helps keep people in their boxes so the level of dynamism in this environment the the, the ceiling and the floor feels a lot more uh, in play. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm feeling that right now,
1: Duncan. Looking at your mirror and your, um, your blinds there, thinking, geez, those are cool blinds. Wonder where Duncan got them from. (laughs) But, but, but I guess that that's it, right? And, you know, it's interesting when you meet people. Like I'm a massive people watcher. And and I always think, uh, you know, I'm like, oh wow, well, you know, well, what, what does that person do in their spare time, or you know, do they are they vegan? Are they like, would they have, an, you know, an americano? Or would they be a flat white person? So so I'm fascinated by that, and um, so 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 actually, you're getting to know people a lot better, and I think there's a real intimacy. Uh, to, to Zoom and to Skype and to, you know Microsoft Teams and and whatever um, we're using um, that's been forced upon us, but again, just the way I see the world is that it's an opportunity and and um, you know I've I've been on some calls uh, with some pretty I guess important people and, and and you're just like wow they're just like us dealing with having to um, you know uh, play the Wiggles and and cook dinner and. Uh, Um, and and have this uh, really full-on kind of negotiation, uh, creative and business.
0: Um, It's funny what you said before about uh, reality TV and it lacking a support structure here. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because there's been this um, aversion to funding reality TV in the same way. It's not like we haven't done it, but we sort of... We, we we need to give it this extra element or or like kind of find some other reason to justify it beyond its pure sort of entertainment or, you know, and we, we act like it doesn't have a cultural value. And some of that is actually related to something that you were intimately involved in in, in the GC and the, the way that people reacted to that wrongly, I think. And, you know, as a result, we're in this sort of strange bind where New Zealand actually has one of the most, you know, I think pound for pound, we're probably the most original creators of reality TV in the world on a per capita basis. We've got amazing infrastructure around it and companies like yours and Julie's, but because we have not either given it the cultural weight or, um, sort of built a, the, the sort of the kind of government funded infrastructure around it, it's sort of a paradox on one level, the, the industry is lean and it knows exactly what it's doing and it doesn't have you know it doesn't require anyone else's blessing to go out and get to work but also we don't have that kind of uh we don't have a sort of unscripted sector board we don't have all these guilds that go out and advocate for us in a way that Right now, you know, we should be screaming to get productions down here. Like, what do you think about the weirdness yeah. sort of stigma well,
1: around reality? Oh, 100%. Look, the reality is, the reality of reality is, uh, I think we, it, it, a big determinant is whether you view culture with a big C or a little C. And um, I, I was brought up in an environment, and, and I guess this is kind of where I've always gained strength from, because I was brought up in a, what you would suggest a pretty traditional Māori environment. My grandparents' first language was Māori. Our first language in our home was Māori. I'm a fluent speaker of Māori, brought up on the East Coast. So I guess... That's, you know, an upbringing that you would suggest would be from the culture with a big C. But from a really young age, I was always a a, a, a massive consumer of uh, pop culture. My grandmother used to love <laughs> – she'll rest her soul – uh, uh, she used to love um, – you know, Falcon Crest and Dynasty and, um, all, all these, uh, programs that I used to like by osmosis get, um, drawn into watching them and Magnum PI and Dukes of Hazard, dare I say it, with, um, um, the Confederation flag on. But I guess we we're just uh, products of our time. And, and so, so despite this kind of, um, you know, upbringing, I was always a consumer of, uh, a lot of American <clears throat> and then British programming. Um, I, I, I find. Look, I, I, I'm just up for the debate on that, um, Duncan, about its place um, in the in our sort of cultural infrastructure, if you like. Or, or, because uh, whether or not you know people believe it is or not, is it shouldn't impact somebody's right to tell that story or to use that medium to tell that story. And you know, you talked about the GC. What's interesting is. Um, Construct-wise, there's very little difference between the GC and the Casketeers. Now, the Casketeers is one of my favourite shows ever. Um, Beautifully made, but actually, construct-wise, it's still constructed reality because, um, you know, you still go in and, well... um, uh, the uh are sort of undertaking their daily activities. There's still a camera crew there, and, they, and they're still like you know pre-thought put into what they're doing. And can you do this? Can you can you tell us? You know, can we get some shots of you with your leaf blower um, and, and and things like that? Which is largely the same as the GC. And and actually, uh, even if you look at the definition of the documentary, it's the creative interpretation of reality. Um, and and so. I guess there's a big difference between kind of constructed and heavily manipulated reality and and kind of much more observational documentary um so so I think uh yeah uh, I, I don't even personally know where I sit on it um other than I, I just love the debate and and love to be able to reserve uh, somebody's right uh, to be able to tell that. Generally, though, it's looked down upon. Uh, And I always laugh, you know. We were talking about Taika uh, pre this call and and, uh, how amazing it is that he's doing Star Wars. And I remember sitting at a a dinner with him and a whole lot of studio executives one night, and they were all talking, you know, and then uh, about what their guilty pleasure was. And somebody said, oh, I hate to say this, but, you know, I really like this reality show. I can't even remember what it was. And then they all started ripping off on a reality show, and Taika looked at me, and I was like... Oh, I make, I make reality and you could sort of see the table. And I was thinking, I sort of said, it's, it's funny that, you know, you're here making a uh, fiction, fictional film about superheroes who wear their undies on the outside and, and yet you look down on reality. <laughs> what's the, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, that's not fair. Um, but now nah, look, I, I, I think it's like anything, um, in a healthy, um, content consumer and consumption environment, we'd have everything. We'd have a bit of, bit of um, you know, chocolate and, and we'd have uh, some healthy uh, kale salad as well. So,
0: Yeah, I just happen to think that reality, I mean, the, this whole podcast grew out of a previous podcast I did called The Real Pod, which was entirely about reality TV every <laughs> week. You know, so I'm, I'm, I I don't think it's a debate. I think that we're right. It is culture, and I don't care whether the is up or down, uh, and and anyone who tries to suggest it's not is just, you know, it's a, it's such an easily lost argument, um, and I think a lot of it the time it comes down to. I mean, just as you said that, like the reality boom in the mid two thousands came out of the writers' strike. You know, they, some of them perceived it as almost like scab labor. It's it's writers and cultural people. From a, of a particular ilk and often a particular class um, protecting a certain vision of culture. And there is a democracy about reality that says, are you kinetic um, on-screen talent? Can you have an amazing idea? Are you willing to to force this thing through to its conclusion to make it electric? And, and then, then you can make TV. It's it's kind of a punk television in in many ways and and even down to the the way it sort of wears its uh, you know the the commercial elements on its on the outside and that doesn't so it isn't embarrassed about them I I feel like it um, it speaks to that and I think New Zealand is actually but at once as I said before it's a great maker of and divisor of reality TV and from sidewalk sidewalk karaoke on up um, to or on out, sorry, to, to, and and it is a place that still holds a really weirdly disdainful attitude towards it. And I think, to be honest, that there's going to be, come a time when we have to sort of really assess the integrity of that. And I think that time's coming soon because historically, while we couldn't afford to fund premium drama, we could still afford to kind of commercially make, uh, without New Zealand On Air funding, reality shows Within our linear networks, that might not be true anymore. Do Do you think that the that the case will need to be made that that debate will need to be had in public a bit more?
1: Yeah. Look, I I think that there is a um, I, well, two things. One is is that post COVID, all bets are off. I think, and and you know the prevalence of um, multi night uh, big reality shows on uh, linear TV will be, have to be a choice that, you know, an agency like New Zealand on air decides whether or uh, not to, um, you know, to move into that area. So I think that, I think the second part of that is, um, around New Zealand's ability what i would like to see is a heavier weighting not so much to to international formats um even though i've made some of those and will probably still make some of those in my career um but actually local uh, intellectual property as you said i mean the whole idol f- f- craze came out of New Zealand right um pop idol um so you know, we we deserve our place in the pantheon of, um, you know, the hall of famers uh, in regards to reality TV. Obviously, Julie Christie, um, right through. Um, look, I see some really cool stuff, and and it's always an interesting argument, eh? Because um, what's Tiger King on Netflix? Is that is that a reality? Is that reality or is that observational documentary? Like, I I just don't know. Like that was was one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Um, and and so it's always a tough argument. I agree with you, bro. That that actually uh, it doesn't matter whether it's up or lower case. C, um that it is part of us. Um, but but I do think um, the time has come to reopen that debate. And maybe uh, after this, I'll give Cameron Harland a call at New Zealand on Air Duncan. And I'll say I was talking to Duncan Greave, and Him and I both believe. <laughs> <that> we'll
0: <laughs> my jump on a Zoom with him. That way we can sort of debate. That's him, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Hey. So. A lot of the, the work that you've done uh, has been in uh, Māori media, either on Māori TV or, um, you know, you currently produce uh, Marae. How... What what do you sort of see? And then there's a big debate about both the level of funding that receives and how that interacts with the mainstream, and particularly in light of the the bailout that's happened for the, the sort of mainstream media companies. What is your current diagnosis of the state of it and the the role it plays, and and where would you like to see it go?
1: Yeah. So look, uh, one of the things I guess this current government has done is came in and kind of probably you know they had nine years in the opposition benches um, and coming in gave them an opportunity to reassess most things um, and reimagine the world from their point of view and and so they look there's probably three or four big creative sector reviews um, you know that have uh, uh, that have gone um, that are underway one of thems a, a Modi review uh, look I've, I've been privy to some of that um, m- m- here's my simple um, uh, summation though, is that ninety five percent of the screen sector's contribution uh, in a Maori context is born out of Maori language. Now, I think that that should should remain the case, but I think on top of that, uh, let, let's say that you know that that government investment in that is ten dollars. Um, I'd say leave that ten dollars there, but what needs to increase? Um, would be um, another $10 that would be around Māori perspective because I just don't think, and, and look, I've said this, I'm not saying this because I'm talking to you, but I've said this to Leonie, I think Atea should be supported because it it it, it really promotes uh, a distinct Māori uh, perspective on things. So uh, Atea, which is on the spin-off uh, for those people that don't know. So so we, we can't just be about the language, even though I'm a language... Um, uh, supporter, big, big to reo Um, supporter. I also think that we've got to pay, um, respect to that Maori uh, perspective, and and you could say that it's a treaty, right? Uh, which I agree with, but you could also say other things about it in regards to, um, just ensuring that there is a perspective. You know, one of the things that we always talk about in, at at panel. Is and you know our our goal our mission is to influence the world through mouldy storytelling right so whether or not it be an explicitly mouldy um, thing like Madai or whether or not it be uh, we've got a new animation that comes out at the end of the month uh, called the Exceptional Squad which you know isn't overtly mouldy but it, you know we always like to think it's got a mouldy heart um, the interesting thing is we always say I, what would we do to maths. So married at first sight, like what, 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 what Maori sensibilities or what, what Maori worldview um, could we bring to something that seems so explicitly uh, train Ricky, uh, if that is a term? Um, but you know, how would we treat that? And 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 I hope that that is the bigger role that we are able to play in the media landscape. And and would we like support for that? Yeah, we would. Um, New Zealand on air has you know a, a small. Uh, pot of money in regards to that but I think uh, I would definitely like to see that part of the sector
0: uh, increase and because I mean that's that's obviously I appreciate what you said about RT and that was always the the sort of mission uh, the co of it was to to be within um, a sort of a more you know mainstream site but to, to just have it uh, sitting sitting there alongside everything else and not have it siloed by time slot or, or buried somewhere and um, and and I think that you do see amongst the uh, more the the sort of mainstream media in New Zealand there is a greater sense of that there was it was a real it felt like a real void for a while and I'm not saying by any means that the spin-off is alone in um, in valuing that but I it, it sort of speak it strikes me as yes, there is a um a, a treaty element to it, but you know before we uh, started recording, you were talking about um Taika and the extent to which he and his sensibility and and his sort of sense of humor, which seems to be a very Māori um, sense of humor a lot of the time. I remember Dan Taylor wrote a fantastic piece about um Thor Ragnarok, describing it as a, as a very Māori Marvel movie and. And that sort of kind of characterises the way that he is almost like infecting Hollywood with his um, with his sense of humour and, and his sensibility. And and you look at that and you go, well, this isn't just like a, a sort of a true thing. It's also, it's the business opportunity. And I think that that's what um, Pongo has, has proven as well, is like this idea of taking, you know, you, you know, often these shows start on, on Maori TV, but then the format is bought by, uh, Freemantle, you're you're having conversations in Hollywood and can because you've got something different. I remember on that um, Julian Wilcox pod, you talked about um, going into this meeting with and um, with your tamokal exposed and going, should should I cover this up? Like, will will who I am be a negative? And your your agent saying, a yes, it will, but b the only people who buy will be the people who see it as a positive too. And I think that that is our. Yeah, we're a long way from anywhere. Um and even with the COVID nineteen stuff, like what are our what are our national advantages? And it seems like uh our our landscape and um the Māori perspective, that's it. They sit alongside one another, but we only really seem to lean hard into one when we're selling. Does that is that fair, do you think?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a really good um uh, analysis of it because um, I, I look, I'm, I'm a big believer that the Modi um, dimension of what we, um, you know, of, of what we propose as a, a country is huge, and and which I, I guess kind of supports what I said earlier about the perspective thing and and really strengthening that part. I mean, I, I am yet, you know, look, I, I think um, uh, New Zealand on air. New Zealand Film Commission all do a really good job um but but actually um, kind of max out at a certain conversation level around it because um I think you know uh, the problem is is I, and look when you look at the sector um, and you look at those because there's a there's a sustainability element to that as well Duncan which is around who can constantly be badgering them. Um, about the importance of this but but more than that, putting in front of them projects that actually um ask those valid questions um, so so I think you 're right um it is landscape in Māori. um and but but I also think though, and this is something else I said you know you look at someone like lord um she doesn 't necessarily fit into either of those categories and yet has what you know just blowing up out of here in a way that um i think um you know we may never see again um so so you know where where does she get accounted for in 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 that kind of uh ecosystem as well
0: yeah i i look i, I agree i think she she's an extraordinary talent and and yet while she's a very singular talent she also seems to be very much a function of New Zealand's creative ecosystem, which is which we have historically used, um, and we are aware of. But I don't think we, I don't think we, again, I don't think we sell it particularly well. Like she, she came out of the fact that she sort of was discovered at a particular, or or you know, made herself discoverable at a particular age. And had the tenacity to keep going around through various writing partners until she found one that she clicked with, but then recorded these like a number one single at like a makeshift studio in a an Art Deco building a kilometer away from where I stand, you know where I sit right now. And the very fact of having both that level of ambition, but the sort of the almost folksy way that it came about, that's not really imaginable in many places, but New Zealand. From whether it's Peter Jackson or Taika self funding his films, like we, or you know, you think of any number of different sort of, uh, you know, the, the number of William Y. or like web series, kind of like people have just made themselves into something more than you would think from the parts around them, just a, a kind of a level of creative ingenuity that exists here.
1: I think, I think that's right. Uh, but could I just um, um, uh, add? A, a, a little part of that um, conversation, Duncan, which is, I think it's Peter Jackson who said, you know, New Zealanders we see things early, and and I don't know whether that's down to kind of our um, our roots, you know, the number eight wire, even though I'm not that keen on that that, that analogy, but 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 the idea that we do have to kind of, um, you know, I guess use what we got, uh, you know, the the other part of. Um, what Peter Jackson said is we do see things early, uh, as New Zealanders, but we're usually a buck short and a day late. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, when you look at successes like Peter Jackson and like Lord and like Taika and Paris Goble, um, they're probably, they, they, they saw things early, but, 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 but we're a, a day early. Um, you know, so a day early rather than a day late. So
0: it's it's true and um it's it is the fact of uh having the this the conviction and will and drive to to get there um you know that that is that is often you know like i think we are we're ideas rich we're not necessarily execution rich um, That's even right. though we we have more of the tools around um, i'm actually
1: i'm actually on another uh, sector, uh, panel this afternoon. I'm gonna, um, use that, Duncan. That's actually good. We are ideas rich and we're just not execution ready. And, th- and that has an element of market fit, uh, to it. And, and the idea that, you know, we are 12 hours away, um, by, f- by plane, uh, from kind of the biggest commercial market in the world, which is obviously the US in regards to content. So, so I think that's always been an inhibitor for many people, but I was like, I, I love going to LA and mixing it up. I, I don't like staying for a long time because, you know, it's like a triage ward of ex-Shortland Street actors up there, Kiwi actors, you know, like in terms of, and look, they're all my mates uh, and we hang out, but everyone's waiting in that city. You're waiting for a callback or you're waiting for your next audition or you're waiting for a green light from a network and and I just can't stand the waiting, but I do love going up there. And I love going up there because I always have this analogy that once you get there, just a piece of chewing gum on somebody's shoe. And actually, that's a really cool position to be in because, um, it just, you know, it kind of uh, increases the fight and, and, um, it just makes you really kind of, um, uh, grateful that you come from an amazing country and you kind of have all this depth behind you and and I think I may have said that in that other podcast which is I've always been a big believer as soon as you can get the execution part what we have as Māori is we just have this papa, this creative papa that is I think as good as anywhere in the world and and really you know I'm sitting in you know, meetings or you're sitting in environments where everybody is 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 as good as it could be in terms of execution, and 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 once you gain those skills, you, you're able to compete at that level in terms of the conversation. But then you just have this whole whole other uh, dimension and realm um, that you can add to the com um, to the mix.
0: The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis.
1: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market. The opportunities it offers what it takes to grow a business there and the best way to approach investors join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the us so you can make your mahi count in this massive market the investment fix podcast brought to you by invest new zealand tune in today
0: yeah no absolutely and i I sort of love that um, it's funny, I feel like in our industry, people look down at times, I look, I think out of a defense mechanism on sales and on that whole end of things. And I know that you love it. Um, love, you it. Just, <laughs> love it. Love it. It's a special feeling, right? Like you, just getting into a room, being confident and just, just being able to control that. I mean, obviously you've done it on a level, which I, I can't even imagine, but I, I've... After hating the process and being almost trained to, I've come to love it. And I feel like more of us should be, should not look down on sales or have this kind of cultural contempt yeah. for it, but see it for how important it is for everything, whether you're selling yourself to a, to an employer, to whether you're selling production to, to Hollywood. It's a skill and it matters. Yeah. Look. We just
1: under appreciate the art of pitching here in New Zealand because New Zealanders don't like people who talk about themselves. So I guess sales is often equated to people who talk about themselves, and you know there's that old Maori saying that um, "kare te kumara kore or motu the kumara and um, t- doesn't talk about its own sweetness." Um, so I guess you know from a cultural context, you're, you're also dealing with that. But my my view is this: is that effectively um, pitching. Or sales is the um the ignition key turning you know it, it, without that you know the car doesn't the car doesn't move um so you've got to get that right and um, I you know I've been told I'm a really good and strong uh, pitcher um and but but mine is just more about connection um I just you know I, I love what I'm into and if I'm passionate about it, um, then I want to tell you about it and 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 I want people in the room to buy into it and buy into that um energy so um but but it is relationship focused I mean my agent is always like dude he was like, man, you're so good in a room and um everyone wants to like you know do do business with you um and and I think that is a lot down to Look, I think everyone likes passion and enthusiasm, and, and 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 when you know, also hopefully know what you're talking about, and and then and you start to put a few things together, and you have a track record, and um um things like that. Then I think that that makes you a much uh, more uh, different proposition. I've got a really quick story I'd love to tell, though, Duncan, on how bad a bad pitch. I, I went to – I flew to um, Washington once, to Washington, D.C. I flew all the way from New Zealand and and I had a um, show called The Game Chef, which ended up making its air and we sold to National Geographic. But I went to a pitch. I flew all the way to Washington and I arrived – I think I arrived at like 10 a.m. in the morning. I went to the gym – um and I was had some a really healthy lunch and then my pitch was 9 a.m. the next morning. And I was like, man, I feel so good. So then I go and do what every uh, self-respecting Kiwi does and go and get drunk. And uh, <laughs> and I started at about three in the morning. I thought I'll just have a couple of beers at a pub. Then I bumped into a couple of Aussies and then they knew some Kiwis and then oh man, then we were singing like uh two tetamingaiwi at someone's apartment in Washington, DC at about four in the morning. And I um, ended up going to this pitch, and I'd had about an hour and a half sleep, I was was reeking alcohol, and I got there, and I um, it's talking about pitches, um, because I think I need to level the field a bit by saying how bad sometimes it can go. And I pitched this show about Game Chef, and it was effectively involved this Italian-Greek restaurateur who uh, would hunt um, with a bow and arrow uh, on the set of Lord of the Rings down in uh, Wanaka, Queenstown. And I sort of went in and pitched the lights out, took all the oxygen out of the room and was pitching for about 15, 20 minutes, not one word. And I was talking about how he was hunter and he could do all these things with a knife and things like that. And the, the guy from National Geographic was like, um, you know, we're a conservation channel. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, <laughs> So, uh, look, you don't always get it right. And um, I, uh, yeah, which is probably a lesson. And I should have done a bit more research on, on that. What's weird, though, is that National Geographic ended up buying it as an acquisition uh, later uh, in certain parts of the world. So,
0: <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, because it's funny, I, like I've talked to um, Phil Smith and a few other people in the industry about uh, CAN and, and MITCOM and these, just the, like, the, because that that level of the process, it's it's so far from anything I've ever seen. But it and it has this kind of mystique around it. Um, and there's a, obviously this tiny handful of New Zealanders who go there regularly who know what to do. It for those who haven't been there, do you want to describe the, the, yeah. those kind of scenes?
1: Um So MIP TV and MIPCOM happen in April and October every year, and they're basically um, where uh, the world's content buyers and sellers congregate um to drink rose. Um because and um and, and, and eat pan of chocolates, which um I always got to go there in pretty reasonable shape because I come home terrible. Um but but look that's effectively what it is. I've I've been there probably about 15 times. I mean Phil Smith, those types of people, John Barnett, Julie Christie, 30s, 40s, thirty, you know, 30 or 40 times they they've been. Um, and um, have you been Duncan? Cause I'd suggest I, I, I tell everybody and I say, um, I, um, tell all my mates, just, just make it to Khan and sleep on my couch. Like, don't worry about accommodation. Cause everybody see, like, it's a massive expense. And, and, you know, that's where I think we could use with support, you know, helping first timers there. And I remember the first time I went, um, I walked into the Palais and there's like 20,000 people and every show in the world is there. It was the one where they launched X Factor and Simon Cowell was on a yacht outside the Palais and was presenting via satellite into everyone that was in this auditorium about this this show is going to be the biggest thing. You know, the Game of Thrones are released there. Um, Everything's released there. And uh, I just remember being so overwhelmed at that. At lunchtime, I went back to my room, shut the curtains, and just lay on my bed and was like, "Oh man, I'm shit." And and you know what am I doing here? And and why would anyone want to buy anything from me? And then then the next time you go, you're like you're less overwhelmed. And then the time after that, you're like, these guys' ideas are just as shit as mine. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and and and, and uh, you end up like um, in a position where you're like, well, actually, I, I think I, I I got this. And then you, I I remember the one where I noticed the tide changing from just you know um, you know being on the fringes to actually having real conversations with real buyers and things like that. And it's a real uh, it's a real cool time. And and now I go and I've got really good mates. Um, and, and a lot of its business is done on those relationships that I have now so it's cool I'd, I'd encourage anyone there's a you can, my couch is available uh, if we ever if we ever get the opportunity to go back uh, so it, there's a long list of illustrious uh, New Zealanders that have slept on that couch I could tell you now um um Duncan? <laughs>
0: I'm Kane I'm Kane um so I'm conscious that we're, we're probably running out of time but I wanted to like bullet point through because one other thing that you are in addition to Everything that we've already discussed is someone who is on a um a shitload of, of boards. Is, is that correct? Could you just yeah, just wheel them off for us? Oh,
1: yeah, I'm I'm on Artsy Photo Group Holdings, which is uh, the commercial arm of of my iwi entity on the east coast. Um, I'm on the steering group of the New Zealand Pavilion uh, for Dubai 2020, which has just been postponed to 2021, obviously because of COVID. Um, I am on the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, and um, alongside twelve other CEOs of New Zealand, including Fonterra, um, Bunnings, uh, Westpac. I, I represent clearly the big end of town, uh, Duncan, but <laughs> not not really. Um, and uh, last but not least, I'm just newly elected to uh, New Zealand Rugby, so um, so so good. You know, got my hands full.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Could you, there's three of those that I'm just super curious about, and that's no disrespect to the uh, New Zealand Pavilion, because I'm sure that's super interesting too. But um, do you want to just talk, talk about your role at, uh, At the, I'll just just sort of bullet point yep. through them, but um, t- tell me about uh, Nati Pavo Holdings and, and how yep. you sort of come, with, with all of that experience, you can help kind of put, uh,
1: yeah, you know, grow your iwi. Um. Yeah. Um, so, look, if you have a look at the Māori economy, largely uh, most of it is in the primary sector, farming, fishing, forestry, um, and uh, horticulture, agriculture. So, so effectively, um, a, a lot of the times what, who ends up being on boards are people that are skilled in those areas, and including lawyers and accountants, and... Um, I've long been a believer that we, we underestimate the soft skills in business, um, whether that be, um, story. And, and for me, that's storytelling. So I guess I bring that, um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply connected to being Ngāti Pirou. It's kind of the big driver of who I am. Um, you know, so, and, 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 and look, my lifelong goal is to improve the position of, of Māori, Māori life, Nati life. Um, and however I can do that, um, is kind of what I'm about,
0: and because uh, uh, when I look at that that sector, there's you know there's it feels like the most important one in New Zealand. It's certainly the the most far-sighted in terms of the the post-settlement iwi and and how they grow. Totally. Them. Do you feel like the, there is enough? You know, like how how can New Zealand? Because because it does feel like like you say there's this the holdings tend to be in land or primary industries and yet a lot of what we've talked about today in terms of where the kind of electric spark of Māori creativity lies is is over in the kind of creative world and its related constituent industries. Do you think there is a case for or an ability to kind of merge the sort of capital and uh sightline of one with the that, that sort of community over on the other?
1: Um w- that's a really interesting um, question and I'd probably need to think about that a lot more. I mean, has iwi – look, I, I probably think that by most people's account um, – the Maori economy, whether it be iwi post settlement or lands trust, tend to be quite conservative, um, and and media, as you dun- as you know, Duncan, is pretty volatile, um, both uh, in the nature of business and the people inside it. Um, so, so I, I, I guess we've we've got to um, that usually mitigates, <laughs> um, you know, iwi participating in that realm. Um, so. But I do think what I'd love to see is a better contribution from our sector within the Māori economy in terms of the importance of story, the importance of narrative. Um, and Because I think a lot of times we invest in the tangible. We don't invest in marketing. We don't invest in telling that story.
0: Uh, IP. Like IP. Whole...
1: Yeah, and, and, and actually that's, that's the part that's the most scalable because if you have a tree and it produces fifty apples, um, it only you could only ever get a return on those fifty apples. But if you have um, if you invest in you know um, what kind of tree that is um, and the grafting of it in terms of you know you might take Jazz, you might take Pacific Rose, you might take Bra- Braeburn, put you know and, and put them together, you could sell that intellectual property. Millions of times, so so I think as you know, um, that's something that we try to do. Um, focus on the scalable part of what we do uh, at Pangol. So
0: that's mean. Uh, uh, and the the briefly on the, the PM's business advisor. I saw that you got put on that, and I looked at the other names, and I was like, man, that's going to be interesting conversations. How how did is that like? Do you feel like that that's been useful and effective, or like like, and what what kind of things have you experienced through that through that uh,
1: board? Um, uh, so, in regards to the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, um, look, uh, it's been amazing to be at the big table in regards to some of the issues that face us as a sector, um, and that included convening, uh, you know, a group of. Um, uh really um thought leader thought leaders in terms of the modi economy space um and you know putting up a paper which we've we've put up and which hopefully is is incredibly transformative In regards to activating uh, the Maori economy, um, it's probably really needed uh, post COVID. So, um, but but more than that, again, you know, Duncan, to go back to what I said earlier, my goal is to improve the position of Maori. So, any fora where you're able to do that, I think is 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 powerful and 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 i think um you know the prime minister's business advisory council has worked because the other way is is the impact that myself and rachel tolele who's also on there have is 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 the impact that we have on those other businesses and the conversations that we have with them in regards to um i guess a maori perspective or or a different way of doing things
0: Yeah, we just published a piece from Rachel on the spin-off talking about it. No, I read it. It was awesome. She's awesome. She's amazing, eh? Um, She's a powerhouse, bro. She's a powerhouse. Totally. You talk to her and you feel like you're you're (laughs) learning things real quick. (laughs) Um, And then the last one happened or was announced in the past couple of weeks and I reckon is the freakiest one and I was like the most – Impressed and also like <laughs> either scared for you or scared for them. But some <laughs> someone's going to have to change. Do you know someone's what I mean? Gonna... And yeah. that's New Zealand rugby. Yeah. So tell me about like both both your interest in rugby and and how you feel parachuting into that organisation as conservative and like part of a particular type of New Zealand as it is at this moment. Yeah. Well, I think it's because of this moment that kind of makes it. Uh,
1: you know, for me, therein lies the opportunity. If, if if you think about it, like it's probably the best time in the in rugby's history to kind of parachute in, as you said, because things have to change, uh, models have to change. We need new ways of thinking. Um, but but to be honest, I've had one board meeting and. Man, it's a pretty progressive crew. Um, everybody's open-minded. It's not, you know, kind of what you think it is. Um, and, and there's some real big gnarly issues. But but if you think about all of those things, um, Duncan, um, whether it be the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, New Zealand Rugby, Dubai, the exhibition, um, the pavilion, even Gati they're actually all... In the experience business of sorts, right? So, and in rugby, whether it's my eight-year-old son who plays the game to try and, you know, get the bar of chocolate as player of the day and hang with his mates, or my dad who subscribes to Sky um, and buys merchandise, they're all experiences. And and really, more and more now, I think that what we do is, really, we're just in the different parts of the experience business and 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 we um and 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 central to that is the customer um I'd love a better term than customer because I don't think that's quite right when you think about kind of the relationship you have with an audience or the relationship you have with a a rugby goer or the relationship you have with someone who is of Ngāti Perō descent so so you know and and I don't Think we always come from a customer centric point of view, and you know, because I used to be big on mate, I'll just make what I love and what I think. But but more and more, where you hit that sweet spot is where you also consider what the 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 audience may want. In that, I, I don't think that that means giving up on any of your values or attitudes. Uh, not at all. Um, but but I do think it helps you hone uh, a certain amount of your execution. Um, ability uh, when you when you ha- when you do have a customer centric view on things,
0: uh, I, I totally agree, and I think that has historically been a problem for New Zealand rugby in that it was a monopoly supplier of a very uh, highly in demand product, and it that was its DNA that it knew that it sort of defended certain kind of values and it put out a particular product, but people's ability to choose was limited, and then. Over the last twenty years or so, you know, for everything from UFC to Twitch to Netflix has come up and has competed, especially for younger people. And I don't, I think they were very slow to realize that they had to suddenly got, become a customer centric organization, and that that is the opportunity they have to figure out now. And that's what you know. I think you'll you'll do a great job on that board there.
1: Well, and and just on that, you know, the game went professional in 1996. Largely, the content. Proposition is the same, Friday night, Saturday night, um, but we now live in a twenty four seven on demand, uh, and we and we need survivability in the digital um, age. And you know, we, there's a massive drop off rate of boys at teenage level. We um, and you know, you, you can't tell me that's that's that that doesn't have that's not impacted by the fact we don't have strong digital presence and I always use this example my son will play under eights and then go home and watch LeBron James and Yana Satatakumbo highlights videos because there are hundreds of thousands of those and there are only tens of Rico Yuani videos who he wants to watch but he's watched them all um, so and and many of those are could be, um, you know, that see the digitization of assets that New Zealand Rugby already owns. Um, so, so, so I guess that that's part of the big challenge is that we got to remain relevant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, I've I've taken up way too much of your time, but I, I so appreciate it, and uh, I'm just just the breadth of Things that you're interested in knowledgeable about is, is uh, kind of kind of staggering and humbling. But um, it's been awesome to have you, Bailey, and uh, uh, I'll, hopefully we'll we'll speak to you again soon because I, I just feel like the every six months you're going to have seen some things about the way this this industry in the broader sense is going to evolve that are going to be worth checking in with. No,
1: nah, and um, thanks uh, for the corded um, or Duncan, and yeah, let's do this again sometime.
0: That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis.